Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I was uh, looking at my calendar, and I noticed that uh, I preached the first day of this year. So if you think to what that means, I got to preach the morning after everyone had stayed up well after midnight. And so we were all, including I, was sort of, you know, am I really here or not? And so I'm stoked that today is two days before that. And so I'm trusting that you're all awake and uh, that I'm awake. And so we can uh, pay attention and uh, follow along with what the Lord has for us today. The end of the year and the beginning of the year is, is kind of a time of reflection when we get to look back over what the Lord has done and what we've done with the previous year and look forward to what's coming, to what's ahead. And so I think... Um, uh, I had that in mind when, when I chose the passage we were going to be uh, studying together today because it's the final words of Jesus recorded in Matthew where he's giving the Great Commission. So it's Matthew chapter 28, if you'll open to that. Matthew 28, we're going to read verses 16 through 20. But again, these are Jesus' final words to his disciples that Matthew records. They're They're his final instructions to the disciples, the marching orders, if you will. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is the task that Jesus commanded his disciples to do. He commanded that to us as well, to make it the top priority from that time and for the rest of all time. And so as we close 2012, I want us to reflect on this year. And 2012 has been momentous. The world was supposed to end a few days ago, uh, some people thought, and um, praise the Lord that uh, that wasn't his time. And um, so it was a momentous year, and we saw all manner of things, and recently we've seen some very tragic things, some very difficult things in our nation. And uh, so I want us to reflect back on that, but I want us to reflect on it not just uh, in a vacuum, not separated from Scripture, but I want us to bear in mind Jesus' Uh, final command, his great commission that he gave to his disciples. So we're going to start uh, Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read verses 16 through 20, and then we're going to focus on the latter half of that. But Matthew 28:16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven... And on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that we would honor it. I pray that we would submit ourselves to it that we would learn of you, that we would submit to you. I pray that, uh, Lord, you would help us as we deal with uh, large subjects today. Help us to be sharp in our thinking. Help us to be all here and not distracted by what has gone before or what's going to come afterwards, but to be right here and right now looking at Jesus' final words as recorded in Matthew, his instructions that he gave to his disciples. Lord, I pray that you would be lifted up. I pray that you would help us to attend to your word. Help us to be uh, responsive and obedient to the moving of your spirit and to your word. And I pray that you would do your work by your spirit in uh, the words that are spoken and in our hearts as we listen, that you would accomplish your purposes 
in our lives and in the world and uh, in this church and in all of history. Lord, we uh, trust your word that you say you are with us always to the end of the age. And so we look to you now. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I said we're going to look at the... If you have a red-letter Bible, we're just going to look at the red words today, the words spoken by Jesus. And this starts in the second half there of verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we're going to talk, first of all, about Jesus' authority and... Just as a as a preview or a review, what I want us to do is go back over and look at his earthly authority. Now, I'm going to stay mainly, uh, actually, in in this part, I'm going to stay entirely in the book of Matthew to kind of get an idea for what kind of authority Matthew had in mind when when he wrote this. And so, I want us to look back at Jesus' earthly authority, the the, the authority that he had when he was ministering with the 12 and with the others that were around him, okay? So first of all, what I want to do is is go back and look at chapter 7 and verse 29. And as we do this, we're going to walk through and go through quite a few passages. So if you just write, maybe write down the verse or maybe just flip to it or even just listen. But follow kind of the idea that he's building of what authority means and what sort of earthly authority he's talking about here in the book of Matthew. Because Jesus had some... Uh, he exercised authority in ways that were shocking to certain people. Even while he was on earth, they were startling and even made some people angry with the kind of authority that he had. Chapter 7 and verse 29 tells us that Jesus taught with authority. It says here, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He wasn't just passing on information from someone else and not really sure of exactly properly how to interpret it or whatever. He was speaking authoritatively, not like anyone else of his day. And that caught people's attention. He spoke with authority. He taught with authority. Chapter 8 and verse 9 also of Matthew. The centurion recognized that Jesus had authority to heal even at a distance, which is something unusual. I mean, it's amazing for someone to have the ability to heal in someone's presence, but then for the centurion to realize he had authority to do it even from miles away. But the centurion replied, again, this is chapter 8, verse 9. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the centurion recognizes in Jesus that Jesus has the ability to heal, even at a great distance, not even seeing the person. He didn't have to lay hands on him. He could just heal at a distance. That is unique and powerful authority. Chapter 9, and the story, verses 6 through 8, there is a story about Jesus even having the authority to forgive sins. Which, if you think about it theologically, that's a big, big statement for Jesus to have authority to forgive sins. It says there in in, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to this paralyzed man, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So again, this is the authority that Jesus had even as he was ministering on earth amongst his disciples. Chapter 10, verse 1, he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So he's even able to give them this authority to be able to do that. 
21 and uh, chapter 21 verse 23 the religious leaders questioned by what authority he had cleansed the temple and has spoken against the religious leaders and healed the blind and the lame and they were pretty upset about it and they questioned him and they said by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority so they noticed they recognized in his ministry a unique and very special kind of authority but this is his earthly authority this is the authority that we see during his life and so there's a transition and even when people saw this earthly authority they were stunned by it all these things he was doing during his earthly ministry but in our text today, we're going to look at not only his earthly authority, but also his ultimate authority, his ultimate authority, because the Bible talks about a transition, a change that happens in his authority, because he has now, if you remember where this is, this is uh, shortly before he's going to ascend back to the father. So he has lived out his earthly life, his earthly ministry. He's gone to the cross. He's died for the sins of people. He was buried for for three days and then he's raised again back to life he's with the people for a few weeks teaching them and then he's about to ascend back to the father so this is after the resurrection okay so some things have changed he's not just a mortal man anymore something's different he's in his glorified body he's in his glorified position and so some things have changed and this authority that he had before is going to be added to it's going to be changed He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what that means is that Jesus now is the highest authority in all of existence, in all of the universe. So the question is, what does that authority look like? What is that authority going to look like? Well, the New Testament is full of what that authority looks like. But I want us just to look at a few verses very quickly. Again, you might just have to write these down. I'm sorry to cruise through them very quickly. But I want us to get the idea of what's going on and what this authority looks like. So Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. Okay, and he's talking about uh, what has happened, what's gone on. And he points out that Christ was given authority to pour out the Holy Spirit. There he refers to it as the promise of the Father. He was given authority to pour out the Holy Spirit on his people. So there's there's some new level of authority, some new thing going on. All of his people uh, now receive the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in a new way. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament promises that were made. Revelation 5 and verse 12, you hear thousands and thousands of angels are gathered around the heavenly throne and they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. This is the view in heaven. Okay, this is a view in heaven of what's going on. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's Jesus. That's that new authority. That's his new position. That's the fulfillment of what was beginning in his earthly ministry, but now is fulfilled his ultimate authority. He is the ultimate authority in existence. And of course, we went through Colossians and Colossians. There's a great hymn in chapter one, verses 15 through 20. I won't read it all, but to to summarize, he says, uh, it says in there that, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God and in him and in everything, he is preeminent. He is preeminent. He is the ultimate authority. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that, uh, to come. He is the ultimate, highest authority. 
And finally, 1 Peter 3, 22, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, meaning he is superior to all other authorities. He himself is the highest authority. He's the ultimate authority in all of existence. He is the preeminent one, as Colossians says. So, that is his ultimate authority that he has. His earthly authority, the, the authority that he showed when he was on earth, was impressive and startling and frightening to people and made people angry sometimes. But his ultimate authority is absolute. It's absolute. He is the highest authority in the universe. So why is Jesus talking about this? Why is he telling the disciples about this? What does it matter? Well, it's because he's about to send them on a mission that is going to take them to all nations and it's going to take them to the end of the age. That's an incredible breadth and duration of this mission that they have. And he's saying, I have the authority to send you on it and I have the authority to bring it to pass. So that's why he's talking about that. So point number two, he moves into our mission. What our mission is, verses 19 through 20a. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So that's the mission. That is our mission that that we've received. The first part of that mission is go. Go. Now, I get to talk grammar a little bit here. You know how I like that. If you look, if you have a study Bible, maybe even some Bibles that aren't study Bibles, will have a footnote there and it says go. And down in the footnote, it'll say, or as you were going, or something like that. And the reason they do that is because go is actually not the command, not the imperative in the sentence. The imperative is make disciples. But the go is actually a participle. And it's not a, it's not a verb. It's sort of half verb, half noun anyway. That's why, that's why sometimes in your footnotes, it says, as you were going, or something like that. As you're going, make disciples. And so I thought, wow, is that true? Is that really what he means here? Is, 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 that, is it that important that, that go is not the imperative, that it's not the command, that make disciples is? And so I thought, well, let's try and solve this. And how do we solve this? We talk about this in our, in our small group quite a bit. You look at other places where similar structures or similar words are used in the same author, and you get an idea for what is meant here. Okay, And so... Is there urgency here or not? Is he commanding them to go or is he saying, oh, and as you're going along, do this thing. But the going is sort of whenever you want to. So we're going to look at a couple of examples here to try and solve this problem. Matthew chapter 2 has both of these examples. So flip back to Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 2. First of all, we... We just celebrated Christmas, so we just went through the Christmas story, so this is all fresh in our mind, right? We have the wise men who come and visit, and they show up, and they talk to Herod first, and they say, hey, we saw the star, and the king is going to be born, and all this, right? And then so Herod summons the wise men, verse 7 of chapter 2 of Matthew. Herod summons the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying... Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right? What does he actually do? He doesn't actually worship him. When he finds out, what does he do? He sends a death squad, right? And he kills a bunch of uh, babies. Okay, so is he urgent? Does he have some sense of urgency? Does Herod? 
He absolutely does. He wants to accomplish this mission. He wants to wipe out this king who's going to challenge his, his authority and his throne. Okay, so there's, there's some urgency there. And look at what he says there in verse 8. Go and search diligently for the child. It's the same exact construction. The go is a participle, just like it is in Matthew chapter 28. Do you think Herod means get on the stick and go find it? Absolutely he does, because he's preparing his death squad even now to pursue and, and uh, kill all of these babies. He absolutely has urgency, okay? And so he means go and search for this baby. Well, there's another example also in chapter 2. This is, this is the response. This is uh, in verse 13. All right, so the, uh, the wise men come and they visit the family, right? And they take off and they leave. So verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said... Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The angel says to him, Rise and take the child and his mother. It's the exact same construction. Rise is a participle again, and the imperative is take the child. Now, is that urgent? Does the angel intend for Joseph to get on the stick and get gone? Well, Let's see what Joseph does. Verse 14, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. He woke up from his dream, startled, packed his family up and left immediately, post-haste. Okay, right now. So there's urgency there. There's urgency. All right, so the, the footnote that we find in our Bibles, grammatically, it's possible. But when you look at the way Matthew uses uh, this kind of construction, he means go. Go, go. It's not just as you're traveling along, you know, if you happen to see people to make disciples of, make disciples of them. That's not what he means. He means go. There's a sense of urgency in the command. Just like Herod was very anxious that the wise men go and find this baby threat to his throne so that he could take action. And just like the angel wanted Joseph to get up immediately and hit the road, so Jesus' command carries a sense of urgency and a sense of force. Now, it's interesting when you when you go back through the Old Testament and you read about the nation of Israel and what they were supposed to do. We've talked about this a lot in our high school and junior high Sunday school class. But God had called a nation to be his own and then he had placed his name, his reputation in a building, in a city, in Israel. Okay, so God, in a sense, was located in Jerusalem. And... If people, Gentiles from other nations, wanted to learn of God, wanted to become disciples, what were they to do? They were to travel to Jerusalem and become uh, proselytes. They could become Jews in a sense. But they were supposed to come to it, come to the temple. The temple was a, a building of stone. It was one location. It's not easy to move a temple of stone, right? And so that's the Old Testament idea, is that people can come from the outside and come in. Now, Jesus' commission here is a little bit different. His first word is go. Not just receive them gladly when they come in, but go. Go out to them. We're supposed to be proactive, pursuing, going out after them. It's different. He's making a change. This isn't what it, like, like it used to be. Now, I had a, a situation come up this, uh, just this past week. Maybe it was the week before. I think maybe it was the week before. 
I had a high school student come into my office. A student I'd never met before. Another student brought him in. I had never met this person before, and I got to share the gospel with him. That was pretty neat. That was outstanding. Someone came into my office, and I got to share the gospel with him. Now, I did that, and I was very happy to do that, and I rejoiced to be able to do that. It was an outstanding experience. It was encouraging to me. I think there was uh, fruit that was born. It was a good conversation, etc. But how often does that happen? Where someone walks into your office, walks into your life, and comes right next to you so that you can tell them about the gospel. It happens. Certainly it happens. But it is not the norm. It shouldn't be the norm. Because Jesus' command is, go find them. Go find them. Go out there where they are and find them. To all nations. So it's a, it's a different thing. It's a new thing that Jesus is talking about here. He wants his disciples to go, to go. And there's a sense of urgency to it. So the first directive in this mission is go. The second directive is make disciples. Make disciples. That's what he says there in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus had just spent the last three and a half years or so making disciples of his own disciples. He had been working with them. He had been teaching them. He had been training them. He had been giving them opportunity to serve. He had been disciplining them. He had lived his life with them. He was discipling them. And now it's their turn to go and pass that on to other people. That's interesting that I could ask a quiz of my high school students and they should all be able to answer this. But when the Jewish nation was born which essentially was in Genesis chapter 12, uh, with the covenant that God made with Abraham. He calls this man Abraham, or Abram at that time. He calls him out and he makes a covenant with him. And part of that covenant, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, part of that covenant is that the, the, the offspring of Abraham are going to be a blessing to the entire world. The whole world will be blessed through them, right? You're all there? You got it? Well done, well done. We, I, I could have taken a quiz. And they would have passed. The idea was for the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the entire world. For this blessing to spread out. And Jesus is doing that with his disciples. He's telling them, I have discipled you. I have made disciples out of you. Now it's your turn to go and make disciples of the world. Of all the nations. Revelation chapter 5 gives us a picture of what that looks like. So this is again the end. This is in heaven. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. We hear the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders of heaven singing a new song to Jesus. And here's their new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Our mission is to take the gospel to every nation, to every people group on the earth. And Revelation chapter 5 is a snapshot of what that looks like, that it is accomplished. Every nation and language and people and tribe are included in this. So, we are to make disciples, not just evangelize, but make disciples, though that's a huge part of it. We're, we're to make disciples of all the nations. Now, 
The question is, what's involved in being and in making a disciple? How are we to go about it? Well, he says here, first, by baptizing. By baptizing. Matthew 28 and 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Baptism is a part of it. Now, it shouldn't be, but it may surprise some of you that discipleship involves baptism. That shouldn't be a surprise, but I think it might be. Baptism is a part of discipleship. Now, what kind of baptism are we talking about? What what does baptizing mean? Well, baptizing means to submerge, to dunk, to immerse in water. And so I want to Uh, I was telling my kids I could spend pages and pages talking about baptism. I'm not going to. I'm going to kind of summarize and then get back to the point here. But hang with me, okay? Hang with me. So baptism by immersion. Why do we say by immersion? By dunking. By sinking in the water. Why do we say that? Well, first of all, the Greek word means to plunge or to immerse. So that's where we begin, okay? So that's the first part. The second is that the examples in the New Testament that we have of people being baptized... They indicate that they were completely immersed in the water. When Jesus was baptized, he went down into the water and he came up out of the water. He didn't go near the water and then walk away from the water so that he could be sprinkled. He went down into it. He came back up out of it. Mark chapter 1 verse 5, people were baptized in the Jordan. In the Jordan, not near it, not by it, but actually in it is where they were baptized. So... The examples that we have seem to indicate that there's a dunking. There is immersing completely going on. And thirdly, the symbolism is only clear by immersion. The symbolism is most clear. The the idea, part of the symbolism of baptism is that we are being united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. We are being united with him in his death, burial, and then resurrection. And that picture is most clear in someone going under the water, death and burial, and then coming out again, resurrection. Okay, so that's the that's the mode that most clearly uh, backs up, shows, demonstrates, symbolizes that truth. Okay, so that's the mode. That's why that's why I think it's clear from from the New Testament that immersion is the point of doing that. But so that leaves the question: Why? Why is baptism such a part? of discipleship. Why do we baptize? Well, first of all, Jesus commands it, right? In this text, go and make disciples, baptizing them. He commands it in this text. Part of responding to the calling of God on your life is to obey Christ in this very small way. In the New Testament, a person is baptized as soon as they give a a believable demonstration that they have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. Meaning they can indicate and everyone around says, yeah, you're a, you're a Christian. And so they baptize the person as soon as someone can give a believable demonstration of that. So that, that's the first point. Jesus commands it. The second, another reason is because it is a public statement that you are a follower of Christ and are identifying with the church, the body of Christ. So why would that be important to baptize? Well, it's because you're identifying with Christ. You're identifying with Christians as a follower of Christ. We do that here. We have a, a baptismal here. People get baptized. We all see they are, they are joining the body of Christ. They are publicly declaring that they are following Christ. 
And number three, baptism by immersion. It's, again, a beautiful picture of the Christian's participation in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. It's a picture for us to see someone being going under the water, declaring their faith in Christ, that they have died and been buried with him and been resurrected, been raised up to newness of life with him. So they are demonstrating before everybody that they are followers of Christ in that way. Now, baptism is commanded here. But it's not required. It's not a requirement for salvation. We don't, we don't say that salvation is by grace through faith plus baptism. There's one work. There's one work you've got to do, baptism. We don't say that. We don't say that. But it's a clear step of obedience. He says to do this. It's, there are beautiful pictures involved. There's a lot of symbolism that goes on. But it's a part of it. It's, it's a part of discipleship. And it's, it's an exciting testimony that God is at work in your life and in the life of the congregation when you see somebody baptized. We can all testify to that. When we see someone baptized, it, it energizes it. it. It makes us rejoice. It makes us glad to see a new believer or someone who's following in obedience in this way. It's a wonderful thing. And you'll notice here that the baptism is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That word in, you'll see in your footnote in your Bible, into, it's a word that kind of means a transference. It's actually like walking into a room. You can say, I, I walked in the room, but it's clearer to say I walked into the room. And that's kind of the idea going on here is that you're entering in. You're entering into fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. You're being baptized in a sense, indicating entrance into that kind of fellowship. It's a baptism into a relationship with the Trinity. Notice all three are there, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And the reason is, I think, because all three members of the Trinity are involved in the process of salvation. The Father, in his divine mercy, reconciles us to himself through his Son, 2 Corinthians 5. The Son offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins to purchase our redemption, Mark chapter 10. And the Holy Spirit washes us clean and gives us new life, Titus chapter 3. And so it's a, it's a very specific, it's not just being dunked but there's a specific point. There's a purpose to it. We're identifying in our relationship with the triune God. So, baptism is a big part of discipleship. So my question is, believer, have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Now, I've heard some say that they're too embarrassed to get up in front of people and talk, you know, and it's we're a large group and, you know, people get kind of tongue-tied and nervous and whatever and... And so they're too embarrassed. Christ went to the cross to suffer grief and shame and loss and the judgment of God for you. Do you really think your embarrassment in front of people should be a factor? I don't. It's a small step. It's a small step. Some people just don't think that they're ready to be baptized. They're just not ready. They're Christians, but they're, they're not ready to be baptized to take that step. But if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then you need to be baptized. Maybe making a public profession of your faith in that way will be an encouragement to your heart and to your life to help you understand better the calling of God on your life. We are called to be disciples who make disciples. And part of being a disciple is being baptized in obedience to Christ. Now, some of you are new believers, and you think, 
maybe you want to wait a while before you're baptized. You're, you're, you've trusted Christ, but you know, this is kind of new and you don't, we don't want to jump into anything or whatever. And you want to wait a while. But in the New Testament, the idea of a believer who was unbaptized just doesn't exist. I can think of one example, the thief on the cross. That's the only example I can think of. Otherwise, that idea doesn't exist. A believer gets baptized. And so it's a part of being a disciple. It's interesting that he throws it in there. I didn't make it up. It's right there in the middle of verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. They are to be baptized. So, Christian, you need to be baptized. So, it may be a surprise to you, but discipleship involves baptism. That's not the end, of course. We are also to make disciples by teaching. By teaching. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple is a learner, a student, one who studies. And as such, you won't be surprised that teaching figures prominently into the making of a disciple. Knowing God's word is not an optional thing. It's not an elective. Christians are to be people of the book. And I'll refer us to Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the kind of attitude towards the word of God and sin and God that the believer should have. Or Peter says something somewhat similar in John chapter 6. Remember, in, in John chapter 6, Jesus has said some very difficult things. He's, he's taught them some things that are very difficult to understand, hard to take, hard to swallow, and a lot of people have bailed. A lot have said, you know what, Jesus, that's too extreme, I can't do that. And so they've left. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the one who has the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Again, there's an emphasis there on learning, on knowledge, on word, spoken truth. And Jesus has the words of eternal life. We as disciples are to be people who regularly and actively learn from Jesus and learn from his word. That's who we are to be, students of God's word. As disciple makers, we are also to be developing this characteristic in those people we are discipling. We are to be learners together. Notice, though, that the teaching here is directed towards obedience and observance. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Observe, to obey, to do all that I have commanded you. There is a lifestyle involved. It's not just knowledge. He says, teach them to observe all I've commanded you. A disciple is not only a learner. A disciple is also a follower. Someone who goes after. Someone who follows a teacher. A leader. And that's us. Followers. Part of the teaching and discipleship involves modeling and urging obedience to what the disciple is learning in Scripture. So, we study the Bible together. We read the Bible together. We're learning what it says. Good. That is step one. A life of obeying that is supposed to follow. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ. I get that from the text right here. Teaching them to observe 
all that I have commanded you. Notice that the content of the teaching is what Jesus had taught. He says, all that I have taught you. He doesn't say, learn Moses really well, learn your Old Testament really well. That is certainly a part of it. Jesus referred often, very often, to the teachings of Moses, to the Old Testament. So that's certainly a part of it. But he includes his own teaching. He says, teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. It's centered in Christ. It's centered in his teaching. That's where it's located. So we've talked about Jesus' authority. We've talked about our mission. But the commission, the great commission here closes with the assurance of Jesus' presence. Jesus' presence. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, he has talked about all nations and to the end of time. Okay, that is a, a serious duration and breadth of mission, right? It's enormous. It's too much for them. It's too much for them. It's too great for us, too. So, Jesus encourages them with his own authority in verse 18, and now in verse 20, he encourages them with his own presence. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The fact that he's always present is a great, great comfort to the disciples. It's a comfort to me to know that he is present. I am with you always. I am with you always. It's a comfort when, when we run up against things that are too great for us, challenges that are too much, situations in life that, that are too painful or we can't see around. He says, I am with you always. Throughout this commission, throughout this mission that you're on, I am with you. It's a comfort he will be with us throughout the duration of it. His presence also means that we receive and senses supernatural power to carry out that mission. In our small group, we just talked about Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He's given us the power to do what we need to do, to accomplish what he's called us to accomplish. Until this point, Jesus has always been with them in person, physically. He was standing next to them, right? They could feel him. They could put their arm around him. He put his arm around them. He's been there. But now he promises them his own presence, his own power, and his own comfort to carry on this mission in a new way. He's the one with the authority from verse 18, and he will continue to be with them to exercise that authority throughout the duration until the end of time, till the end of the age. So, I want us to ask one, one question of ourselves, and then we'll lead into the implications for ourselves. To whom is this command given? To whom is the commission given? Well, it's given to his disciples in front of him there, right? At least the 11 were there, minus Judas Iscariot, right? So at least the 11 were there, but what's the command? Think about the logic of the command. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Did the age end when the Apostle John died? No, it didn't. The age is going on right now. We're in it. They were commanded, make disciples who are going to make disciples who are going to make disciples through the end of the age. So the, the command, the instruction... The commission is specifically and directly given to them. By extension, it's given to us. We're included in that. We are a part of the Great Commission. It's not been finished. Did you know there was a time, a great time, a long time in church history when they thought the Great Commission was finished? 
that the, the, the apostles finished it. It was done. And it wasn't until the age of William Carey and, and others who thought, they read this and they said, I don't think the nations have been evangelized. We're to be going. And so you have this great missionary movement begin to happen of the gospel going out actively into the world again. So the commission is given to us. We are not exempt. It's not done and it's not given to someone else. It's given to us. We are to be the ones who are going, making disciples, baptizing, and teaching. That's us, okay? So, with that being settled, I have a, a, a few questions here, some implications, some reflections for us. First of all, 2012 in retrospect, and I ask these questions of myself, and I want you to ask them of yourself too. In what ways did I grow as a disciple myself? We are to be disciples. So in what ways did I myself grow as a disciple this year? I can see some ways where I, I, might, have, I might have made some, some strides. I might have gained some ground. I see some other ways where not so much. I could use some work, right? But looking back on this past year, that's why I was looking at the calendar and noticed that I preached on the first day of, of this year. Because I was looking at it and I was trying to think of this past year. In what ways have I grown as a disciple this year? Question number two, still retrospect on 2012. Did I spend my year pursuing the mission Jesus gave me? This is the great commission. This is the top priority, what we are to be about doing this. There's a lot involved in it, but it is top priority. When I look back at 2012, do I see that as my top priority? No, I don't. No, I don't. And I want you to ask that of yourself too. Was that your top priority? Jesus said, this is your top priority. This is it. He's just about to leave. This is the, the final words, the final instructions of Jesus in the entire book of Matthew are go and do this great thing and I'm with you and I have all authority to command you. Go, go do it. All right? That's what the conclusion of the whole book is. That's the great commission. Did I spend my 2012 pursuing that great commission? Well, in ways fits and starts at times. But ask yourself that. What about 2013 in prospect? Looking forward to 2013. I want us to think about in this new year how we can get involved in the mission that Christ has given us. How we can get involved. And I don't just mean spending more hours of your life at church. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being more involved in making disciples. That's what we're called to do. That's the, that's the heart of this. Go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. So how can I get involved, be focused more on making disciples during this coming year? I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus said that's what we're to be about. Third question, how can I grow as a disciple? Well, first of all, do I need to be baptized? That would be first step, right? That's the first step right here. Am I a believer and have not been baptized? I need to be baptized. So do I need to be baptized? When can I do that? When can I be baptized? It's a simple step, but it's a, it's a central part of what goes on here in the Great Commission. Do I need to figure out and commit to a more involved learning process? We're to be learners. I myself am to be a disciple. Do I need to figure out, maybe I need to get up earlier, maybe, maybe I need to go to bed earlier, 
Maybe I need to trim some other things out of my life so that I can make more time for studying and learning God's Word. Maybe I need to get involved in reading with, a, with another brother in Christ. Maybe you need to get involved in reading with a, a sister in Christ, ladies. Maybe you need to have a more active involvement being a learner yourself of God's Word. What about daily Bible reading? Do you do that? That's a simple thing, right? That's a simple thing. Uh, it's a simple thing to forget, too. It's a simple thing to pass over because I'm busy. But it's a central thing. What about scripture memorization? We've been encouraged and challenged recently, again, about scripture memorization. And so that's a way we can grow. We've heard testimonies of the uh, blessings of people who have memorized God's word and what God is doing in their lives through that. Another area here where I can grow as a disciple, and also the last question, grow as a disciple maker, is by continuing, or starting if I haven't done so, to pray for people around me who don't know the Lord. A list of five Bill Kristoff challenged us with. A list of five. And it could be ten or it could be whatever. The number's not important, but it's to have a group of people that, whose salvation we are praying for regularly, daily, on a daily basis. Am I praying for these people? That's a way to grow as a disciple and as a disciple maker. So I want to encourage us and challenge us to that. Have we forgotten that? We set it aside. I have a note written here somewhere in my Bible. Do I pay attention to it? I have names written down. Do I, do I pray? Do I pray for them? Or maybe I've learned a ton. Maybe I'm an egghead. All right? I've learned a lot. And I need to grow in obedience. Maybe I'm not obeying. We're to be teaching others to observe all that Jesus commanded us. That means that we as disciples are to be ourselves observing all that he commanded us. So maybe I need to grow in obedience. Maybe I'm learning a lot and I enjoy the learning process, but man, practical application, I don't really like that too much. I don't like to do that. It messes with my style or something. It messes with my life. Again, that's not an optional step here. It's not an optional part of it. We are to be obeying all that he taught us. So how can I grow as a disciple maker? Well, the question is, how can I be more intentional about going to others who don't know Christ and sharing the gospel with them? and begin the disciple-making process with them. How can I be more intentional about that? I want to have the gospel on my lips. I want it to be a regular part of conversation. There are some other things that are a regular part of my conversation. I want the gospel to be central in that. So when I'm talking to people, it's normal to talk about the gospel, whether the person is a Christian or not. I want it to be normal. This is to be our, our, our mission. This is the, the mission that he's called us to. The second part of that is how can I get involved in the lives of younger believers to help make them disciples who will also make other disciples? How can I be involved in discipleship in people's lives? That's not just something the pastor does. That's not just something the elders do or the Bible study leaders or, or whatever. You don't have to be over 65 to disciple someone. You don't have to have a Bible school education. That's not the point. You're, we are to be disciples who make disciples. That's a normal part of church life supposed to be. And so we need to pursue that. Think about some younger believers in your sphere of influence, in your circle, that you could get involved in their lives and involved in, in discipling them and bringing them closer and closer uh, to Christ in that sense, walking with them as they grow in the Lord. I want to close with this. Our memory verses for the last two months have been tied together. Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2 was November, and then 3 and 4 uh, was this month, December. And so it's right on track with what we're talking about here. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, 
Call upon his name. Make known among the peoples what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. That's what we're talking about here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, for the encouragement that it is that you are with us. You don't leave us alone to do this. You don't uh, tell us to go out on our own and fend for ourselves and hope you make it to the end. That's not what you do. You say you have all authority and you say you are with us. And so we praise you for that. And Lord, as we go about our lives, as we go into this new year, and as we look at these challenges that are hard and that are heavy and that we fail at very often, Lord, I pray that you would be with us through the end. I pray that you would help us to seek you, help us to rely on your strength, to rely on your work in our lives, to carry on this commission, this mission that you've given us. It's huge to all nations, impossible for us. To the end of the age, impossible for us. But you say you are with us and you have all authority. And so we trust in you and we rely on you. And I pray that you would do your work in our midst. Lord, as we have talked about what it means to be a disciple, to make disciples, we've talked about baptism, we've talked about going. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church and as individuals to know how to apply this in our lives. We look to you and we trust you. And we pray that you would work mightily. Use uh, your word by your spirit in our lives to bring about your good work in us. I pray for your great work here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.